tonight on Farage, we'll be discussing the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, who last night prevented that plane from going to Rwanda. I'll be joined by Tom Persglove, the minister responsible for illegal immigration, asking him, should we leave ECHR? I'll have lawyers, academics, MPs, all talking about this subject. And it's Royal Ascot Week, so we're going to talk a bit of horse racing in the horse racing industry with former double Grand National winner, Carl Llewellyn. He'll be here with me on Talking Pints. A government elected with a massive majority to get Brexit done, to free us from European institutions and, of course, to take back control of our borders. And I remember six years ago next week, that vote, the turnout was much higher in the referendum than anybody predicted. And the key factor that got people to go to the polls was they wanted control of our borders. And yet, at five past ten last night, some obscure judge, whose name we don't know, from the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, finally puts the tin lid on any idea that a plane will go to Rwanda. And within three or four hours of that judgment, the first migrant boat came in to Dover at about a quarter to midnight last night. There were 44 people on this boat, you can see, if you're following this on television. Um, and they weren't added to yesterday's number of 444 people who crossed the channel and were processed in through Bedover Centre. And this morning, a boat dropped off 12 men on Slapton Sands Beach in Devon. They disappeared very quickly into waiting vans. So we have illegal immigration into Britain not just happening on the narrowest part of the English Channel, it's happening even more broadly than that. Now, I have been saying for some years now that for Brexit to be complete, we've got to be free of the European Convention on Human Rights. We've got to be free of that European Court of Human Rights. Interestingly, Theresa May and David Cameron were prepared to contemplate leaving ECHR. Boris Johnson didn't do the job. Should we leave ECHR? That's my question to you, the viewers and listeners tonight. Give me your answers, farage at gbnews.uk. Well, earlier on, we thought we'd get the temperature in Westminster. So Joe Casper from our team went out and asked a series of questions, starting with the Attorney General, Suella Braverman. She was asked, should we leave ECHR? Well, it's obviously very disappointing, Prime Minister. Um, uh, uh, the Home Secretary's just made a statement in the Commons uh, setting that out. Um, and the government's going to be considering all options on what the response should be. It's, is that one of the options leaving? I'm not going to make policy uh, on the hoof uh, in the street. You'll, you'll respect that process. But the Prime Minister, the Home Secretary, everybody in government's absolutely determined to stop uh, the illegal practice, the unlawful practice, the harmful and destructive pr practice of uh, uh, people smuggling across the channel. How disappointed were you that that plane I'm didn't take off? Thank you, Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Uh, well, the ECHR was produced by Conservative lawyers uh, to stop uh, Germany after the war and learn the lessons from the appalling uh, Holocaust, which killed six million people and I think those Conservative lawyers from Britain um, did a very good job in protecting human rights after the most despicable murder of six million people. I'm not commenting on that I'm afraid. Thank you very much. And this obsession with these Rwanda flights, this immoral, expensive and now failing policy is undermining the rest of the immigration system which Priti Patel said today she wants to make sure is firm and fair. 
Well, she needs to be addressing the problems that are already within the system. It's not fit for purpose. Oh, good grief. No, I would not. We helped to found it after the end of the Second World War. Churchill played an important part in creating it. But it's it would be terrible if Britain were to leave. But it's stopping foreign policy. Thank you. Well, they were the reactions we got in the street in Westminster. Not exactly overwhelming support there for leaving ECHR. But interestingly, you know, the government minister saying all options are on the table. Well, joining me is Tom Perslav, MP, and he is, of course, the Minister for Illegal Immigration. Before we get to the heart of the matter, uh, the breaking news in the last half an hour, Lord Guite, the ethics adviser to the Prime Minister, has resigned his position in the wake of Partygate. It's not a good look, is it? Well, I'm not really in a position to say too much, Nigel, in the sense that I've been touring the television studios oh. talking about the partnership with Rwanda this evening. But, but it's course, not a good look. Well, what I would say is that clearly Lord Guy has reached a conclusion. He is a distinguished public servant who oh. in several roles has contributed much to our country and I just want to say thank you to him for the work that he has done and um, I understand he hasn't given specific reasons no, and hasn't. of course this is a private matter for him and if he chooses to make his yeah, views known, that would be show him great to do. confidence in Boris Johnson I would suggest but we'll come back to this another time now Tom on the 14th of April you announced the Rwanda policy you mm. came and sat in that very chair um, and I put to you at the end of our conversation this question Strongly Would you about repeal it. the Human Rights Act and if it proves that this plan cannot operate because of that European legislation in UK law? Well, I am very clear, Nigel, that what we are doing is entirely compliant with our international obligations, and so that shouldn't be required. The Deputy Prime Minister is looking at, of course, the human rights legislation. That's currently out to consultation, and we are determined to bring forward reform. But I would argue that the policies that we are talking about today are compliant, so I would argue that legal challenge will be baseless. We'll see. Well, Tom, you hoped at the time that we'd be compliant, but as it mm. turned out, at five past ten last night, a nameless judge from the court in Strasbourg basically, as I say, put the tin lid on that flight going to Rwanda. We can't do this if we stay part of the ECHR. We can't do this if the Human Rights Act stays unamended, can we? Well, it is disappointing, of course, that there was that injunction on that specific case that the ECHR handed down. And what is frustrating is that when I left to come and see you, we still hadn't got the spe specifics of that judgment. We, we don't actually understand all the underpinning of why they've reached which the conclusions. Doesn't that prove, doesn't that that prove my point? Which, doesn't which that prove my point? We shouldn't be subject to a European court made up of people in many cases who aren't even judges. Mm. I mean, they're almost political activists. Isn't it time to get the Brexit process completed? Well, when you consider that in the British courts there were these applications for the injunctions and at each stage they were not granted, we have got the more fundamental um, court hearing that's going to take place in July around the policy as a whole, but I think actually the ingredients of what I said when I was here two months ago still apply. We maintain that this policy is compliant with all of our international obligations. We go into these proceedings confident of those grounds and we will argue that case passionately. Tom Perslow, you can maintain whatever you like but some obscure judge in Strasbourg can rule against you. Isn't it time, isn't it time to recognise that you will not be able to put in place this policy of sending people to Rwanda, which is in effect a government flagship policy, and if you wait another couple of months for this, that's another 20,000 that'll come, or perhaps even more, because as you can see with the weather, the pace, the mm. numbers that are crossing the channel are increasing very, very quickly. Isn't it time to face up to it, that this government's got to make a massive decision? 
Do we leave ECHR or do we stay a part of it? What would you like to do? We need this policy and we need it to work. And I think it's instrumental, actually, and, and really indicative that the Prime Minister has come out today and again reasserted that we will do whatever is necessary to make this work. Um, the Attorney General, when you caught her on the street yep. earlier on, commented that she wasn't ruling um, various she said, steps No, she out. said that but all we options to, are on the table. Exactly, and we need to be sure of our footing. We need to deal in fact. I want to see this judgment around the injunction that was made. I want to understand precisely what their rationale for this is. I think it is very frustrating, and I think your viewers at home will be as irritated as I am and as irritated as you are that we have had this injunction on that specific case that then did wipe out well, you, several of the last of the I'll few people on this. I tell you, will be irritated. A huge number of voters in the, in the so-called red wall. A lot of people who've switched their votes, they were Labour years and years ago, they voted Conservative, many cases for the first time in, in December 2019, and they really thought that getting Brexit done, delivering on our borders, this is why they voted for you. So I put it to you, if the other options don't work, are you prepared to contemplate? Would you in those circumstances back leaving ECHR? Well, you, you try to tempt me down a particular avenue, but we need to be sure of our position. No, we need I'm to understand you, precisely you, what has happened. If all options, and I, by the way, I'm certain this isn't going to work all the while we're part of the ECHR. I predicted that when you were here two months ago. I believe it very strongly. Mm. I could be wrong. I could be right. I'm just asking you, Tom Perscott, very simply, if the other options don't work, are you prepared to back leaving the ECHR? Well, I believe, as I've said previously, that our policy is compliant with our international obligations. And so in that sense, these legal challenges should be baseless. And I, we go into these um, proceedings in um, the British courts in July, confident of our position about this policy. But as the Prime Minister said, we will make an assessment based on the facts and we will make judgments then about like what the appropriate next steps are. It sounds you may make could be a very, very long time down the road, by which time the sheer number of people crossing the English Channel will become overwhelming. And with it, your chances of winning the next general election will have gone, won't they? And you know what the worst thing about all this is, actually? It's the fact that every day that passes, where we don't have this policy, this partnership in place with Rwanda, people risk their lives in small boats and in the backs of lorries. There's a moral imperative to act, and I feel really strongly about this. It's what keeps me awake at night in this job. As the Minister for Tackling Illegal Migration, mm. it keeps me awake, thinking that we may wake up to another sinking in the channel like oh, we saw happen. in it'll November, happen. like the loss of life we it'll saw happen. in the back of a lorry in Greys. And I think that's right as to why the Prime Minister has said that we mustn't rule out any option and that we must be sure-footed as we move forward, work out well, what is necessary to make this work and then get on and do it. Tom Perslove, thank you for joining me. I hear what you say, but I suspect if the government does reach that, that conclusion, it'll be a long, long time down the track by which, as I say, many, many more people will have crossed. Now, of course, the origins of the European Convention on Human Rights, and it's something that its big supporters say very strongly, well, this was a British, it was British ideas, Winston Churchill backed it. You know, it was all there post-war. It was designed to be an early warning system to stop the things that were happening in Germany in the 1930s from happening. Uh, but isn't it, given that it's over 70 years ago, isn't it now a little bit out of date? Well, I'm joined by Paul Garlick, QC, barrister specialising in extradition and human rights law and with a distinguished career in the European Commission and many other places. And you're a big supporter of oh. the European Court of Human Rights. I am indeed. I understand why it was founded. I get those arguments. But you must see, surely, that what happened at five past ten last night was an affront to Brexit Britain, to any thoughts that we are a sovereign nation in charge of our own big decisions. No, I don't see that at all. It's completely wrong. 
What happened last night was a judge, and you described the judge as a nameless face. It could possibly want be one of the, Brit the British judge, because the panel of judges are... Uh, are or it could be somebody with no proper formal legal training, but a jurist, as they're known over there. Well... We don't know, but it could have been. Know, but it but could have been. That's beside the way, because uh, what happened last night was not a final determination. It was not a threat to our judicial sovereignty at all. What happens is that under the scheme under the European Convention, if there is a possible real threat of a violation of someone's human rights, you're, you're entitled, when you've exhausted proceedings here in this country, not before you've exhausted proceedings, so the European Court does not intervene until you've gone through every single court right to the Supreme Court, and then there is a final supervisory jurisdiction to Europe, and the European Court makes a decision on whether there has been a violation or whether there will be a potential violation. Now, you talk... Are we not a civilised modern country? Are we, are we not a country, when it comes to I mean, the very concept of genuine refugees, we don't need lectures for, any, for anybody in Strasbourg on this, surely? We've led the way in Europe over centuries on it. I, I think you're being very selective in your criticism. This is not a question of anybody lecturing us at all. Now, let's test it this way. You talk about the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, there are a number of articles under the European Convention. Article 2, the right to life. Do you disagree with that? Of course you don't. I don't, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't no, no, need, wait. I don't need to be given the right to life or the right to anything by a body in Strasbourg. I don't need that. I have that as a free-born person in this country. Well, I don't need it. It's not necessary. Well, I think I mean, we are not a third world country that needs to be monitored. By, I mean, that's, that, that's Nigel, my argument. An interview is a two way thing. No, I get Perhaps it. You I, let no, me no, please. So that's just one you, right. You did ask me a question. I did. <laughs> uh, take, well, I'll give you an example. Yeah. Article 6, the right to a fair trial. You're on holiday in somewhere, uh, maybe. I know Spain, any of the, the 46 member states of the Council of Europe, you're arrested and you're kept in detention. What protects you? It's not English law. It is the European Convention on Human Rights because you have a right as an individual mm -hmm. to petition the European Court of Justice in respect of all your rights, the right to life, the right not to be tortured or, to, or um, uh, treated inhumanely. Article 6, the right to a fair trial, the right to a lawyer, all those rights are enforceable not by the British courts, because you're outside of the jurisdiction of the British courts. You're abroad, and you're in a cell, and you need help. Who's going to give it to you? It can't be the British courts. It's the European Court of Human and Rights. Trust, and we wouldn't trust the Spanish courts or Greek courts, to be fair and reasonable. Is that, is that the if, reason? If you look at the decision, there are decisions against Spain, France, Italy, for delay in trials. The United Kingdom, there have been gross violations of, of, of fair trial rights. We are not immune from criticism and proper criticism. And this is not just no, against the United Kingdom. We do Kingdom. at least have habeas corpus in this country, which other European countries don't have. But let me put this all, point. Almost all countries have habeas corpus. Let me That's put a this complete misstatement. Let me put this. Well, I've, I've seen many cases of people in Spain who have been waiting a year in detention before they go to trial. And that wouldn't happen here, is what I would argue. But, but let me put this fundamental point to you. Mm, of course. You, know, you're, you believe in this system, and I can tell you've got great passion for it. But ultimately, Ultimately, there is a question here of who governs Britain. If we vote for a government, and the government is very clear with the British electorate what it intends to do and forms a majority, should it not be able to carry that out under our democratic system without interference from a foreign court? Well, that's exactly what Russia said two months ago when they tried to withdraw from the European Convention. 
and in fact they were expelled from the European Convention before they were entitled to withdraw. If we withdraw from the ECHR, we're going to be the pariah of Europe. We'll be no better than Russia. Well, maybe we are already because of Brexit. Maybe that's how they view us already. But you're confusing two things. Brexit has nothing to do with the European Convention right. of Human Rights. So you think it would do our country reputational damage if we withdrew from ECHR? Unquestionably. Garlic, thank you very much indeed for coming on and debating that with me. Now, I mentioned the fact there were members of parliament that we sort of doorstepped effectively in Westminster earlier today, and none of them seemed to think leaving ECHR was a very good idea. Options on the table, and you know, Tom Perslove, we asked that question too, and yes, we may consider doing it at some point many, many months down the road. But my argument is if this is months down the road, Goodness knows how many more will be crossing the channel. Goodness knows how many more will be in the hands of these really horrible criminal trafficking gangs, because that's what they are. Well, one MP who I think does have quite a strong view on this is Peter Bone, the Conservative Member of Parliament for Wellingborough. And of course, in your time, uh, human trafficking has been a subject you've been very heavily involved in. Yeah, I chaired the all-party all group against human trafficking. What we're seeing now isn't trafficking, it's smuggling, it's economic migrants, and they are abusing the system. And therefore, people who are being trafficked are losing out because of what's happening. And that's one of the reasons I'm going to introduce a bill on Monday, which mm -hmm. is going to take us out of the European Court of uh, Convention on Human Rights yep. and have a British system. So British courts ultimately decide, won't be any foreign judge deciding. Now Dominic Raab of course is proposing his own legislation in, we're not sure, a few weeks time. He wants to introduce a British Bill of Rights alongside mm. our membership of the ECHR and it seems to me that ultimately, ultimately our Supreme Court can be overruled by that court in Strasbourg. What support do you think you're going to get in the House of Commons for your bill? Well, I think I get a lot of support in the House of Commons, and I think I'll privately have a lot of support from ministers. Now, you, you heard the, I mean, the ex-minister, Tom Perslav, he's absolutely determined to stop these crossings. He but, was being a little bit... He was being a little bit obtuse, wasn't he? Because he was saying, well, we might do it, we might Ooh. not. I think what's happening, Number 10 Downing Street is thinking about this now. They realise if... The British people want this to happen, and I expect the government will announce their bill. But if they don't, well, they're going to have to vote on it on my bill. OK, but if your bill doesn't get government support, it isn't going to go very far, is it? Um, well, it's not likely to get support from the opposition because they'd let anyone in. I mean, that, that, that's the truth. Do that. you believe we can solve this problem and remain members of the European Convention. No, I don't. And, and it's not just the Rwanda situation. It's not just the small boats, which, of course, you were the first person to highlight coming across the channel. Don't forget, there's all these oh. evil so-and-sos, rapists, murderers, who've come out of our prisons, who should be deported, and it's often that court that's stopping it, ha stopping it happening. Yeah, no, I mean, as you say, it isn't just people crossing the channel. It's, it's people who are known torturers that we yes. can't send back to countries, even people on potential terrorist charges. So, now, I've seen this for years and years and years. I've been unhappy with it for years and years and years. Peter, you and I campaigned together in that Brexit referendum up and down the length and breadth of this land. Uh, you know as well as I do that the reason we got a 73% turnout, yeah. not a 60% turnout, as all the experts thought, was this question of taking back control of our borders. If this government doesn't deliver that, 
They're going to lose the next election, aren't they? Well, if we don't deliver, we should be kicked out. By the way, the other person that campaigned with us was somebody called Tom Perscott, who's now the minister. I know, So I, know. I think his heart's in the right place too. Well, I think it is. And just a final thought, Peter Bone. You've been a very strong defender of Boris Johnson. Uh, Lord Guite's resignation today. You know, the ethics advisor, the ethics czar, walks out on the Prime Minister, on the back of party gate, it's not a good look, is it? I don't even know who he is, to be honest. I've never <laughs> met him. But my constituents, and all I reckon the vast majority out there, have moved on for party gate months 41 ago. 41% of the parliamentary party, despite the fact that, that nearly 30% are on the payroll, voted no confidence in the Prime Minister. And last time... It was a bigger figure when Boris first came. He had he no, only got fifty-one percent. That, was a, you know that, that. was a different election. No, it was more difficult. That, that was in a that. contested no, election. Nigel, that was more difficult. Do you know what? More people voted no confidence in Boris Johnson than even in Theresa May. He's in trouble. But if he delivers on this, that's it. If he delivers on this, everything will change. He's Peter got Bone, to deliver. We're going to watch your bill on Monday with very great interest. Got to tell you, this ECHR debate is stirring some memories in me. It feels like the Brexit debate all over again with great passions on both sides, including your views, which you've been sending in. One viewer says, definitely, of course we should leave the ECHR. Why would anyone allow us to tell us what we can do in our own country? Sim says, nope, of course not. Another says, short answer, yes. Long answer, domesticate some form of human rights legislation so that it can be amended by Parliament and put to a referendum. I think Brenda in Bristol would probably say, oh no, not another one. One viewer says, I don't understand why we can't use the ECHR to our advantage. France isn't a dangerous country. Why can't we take these people straight back there after they illegally land on our shores? And finally, Alan says, Patel claiming she'll carry on. We must leave the ECHR ASAP or we'll never control our borders. And Alan, I have to say, that is my feeling on this. I just don't think this is going to happen. All the while we have the Human Rights Act, which of course was the way in which we incorporated ECHR into UK domestic law. Now, that plane last night was supposed to go to Rwanda. Originally, there were going to be 130 people on it. In the end, there were seven as I was on air live last night, and by the time we got to five past ten, nobody was going. But I think it's right and proper that we do talk about Rwanda because the government are determined to send planes. They may or may not go. But let's find out what sort of country is Rwanda. Is it? actually an appropriate place to send people. Well, Phil Clark is Professor of International Politics at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And Phil, uh, you've been a big student of Rwanda and what has happened there. Just remind our viewers and listeners what actually happened there 30 years ago. So Rwanda is a post-genocide society. In 1994, about 800,000 mostly Tutsi were killed in the space of 100 days. But since the genocide, Rwanda has recovered really remarkably. It's a very peaceful, a very stable place. Uh, the economy is, is beginning to surge. So these asylum seekers who may be sent to Rwanda will face, I think, a very warm welcome. Uh, they'll find a very peaceful and, and, and stable environment. But my concern about this policy is not about Rwanda. It's the fact that the UK is reneging on its responsibilities to deal with asylum seekers here on, on UK territory. So my concern is the policy, not the fact that these okay, individuals so, will be sent to okay. Rwanda. So Rwanda, you think, is a decent country. I mean, one or two British press who've been to Rwanda 
say that free speech is somewhat restricted there compared with this country. Is that a fair criticism? It, it is a fair criticism. Uh, Rwanda is a very closed uh, political environment. It's very difficult for the political opposition uh, to function there. Uh, it's very difficult for critical journalists to have uh, their voice heard. Uh, so there are certainly human rights concerns about the general environment in Rwanda. But maybe the thing that's most important for the asylum debate is that Rwanda has been hosting refugees and asylum seekers from the neighbouring countries for the last 20 years. In yeah. fact, there are 150,000 uh, Congolese and Burundian refugees in Rwanda at the moment, living in very humane conditions. So again, my concern with the UK's yeah, policy okay. is no, not no, Rwanda. No, no, that's fine. But it's interesting to see what you, know, what you say about Rwanda and, and the extraordinary way in which it's come on from that appalling genocide. When it comes to how we deal with refugees, you know, we have to draw a distinction between who qualifies as a genuine refugee uh, and who is coming here purely as an economic migrant. Uh, and, and, and here's my observation. You know, I've been out into the English Channel. I've been watching this develop over the course of the last three years. The last time I was out with the GB News film crew, as the boat crossed the line into British waters, we filmed them throwing their iPhones into the sea. We actually filmed this and other documents that were being thrown away. If these were genuine refugees, why would they hide their identity? I think these are genuine refugees in most cases. They are genuine asylum seekers in, in most cases. My concern so, about so this... why UK... would they hide their identity? What are they, I mean, if you're genuine in what you're doing, surely you'd want to show who you were and where you came from. My guess is that that's only happening in a very small number of cases. The, the vast majority of asylum seekers who come to the UK, in fact, have their claims upheld. They are genuine asylum seekers. Now, I think part of the problem with, the, uh, with this uh, policy that's been implemented by the Tory government is that, in fact, it won't deter asylum seekers from coming to the UK. We can look at the Australian example. I'm an Australian. Yeah. We've had offshore asylum detention for 20 years. In that period, the number of asylum seekers coming to Australia has, in fact, increased. These draconian policies don't deter individuals fleeing persecution in places like Syria and Afghanistan and Yemen. So if the idea, if Priti Patel's argument is that this policy is necessary to deter asylum seekers, history suggests that this is completely the wrong way to go about it. In fact, it won't have that outcome. A final thought. If these people are genuine refugees, fleeing terrible places and fleeing persecution, why are three quarters of them very young men? And where are all the women and children? Why are they being left behind? Uh, there are also large numbers of women and children in, in this contingent as no, well. There aren't. There aren't. It's 90% men. They are, in some cases, the most likely to be persecuted and the most likely to be recruited into armed forces in places like Yemen and Afghanistan. So there's good reason for that. One thing that I would also say about the ECHR debate, and I think you've left this out of your discussion, Nigel, mm -hmm. is that, of course, the first court ruling last night denying the deportation of one Iraqi individual yeah. was handed down by a British court. It wasn't the ECHR. The ECHR was the second court involved. The ECHR ruling also said something very important, which I don't think your program has talked about tonight, which is the ECHR said the reason that this individual should not be deported to Rwanda is that his case is still pending in the British courts. The British government is jumping the gun, moving ahead before the British courts well, have dealt with these cases. I think the argument, it's the ECHR that is trying to protect the British courts, I think saying the that British institutions should be able to deal with this but the case. Sovereignty argument, the sovereignty argument isn't whether ECHR makes good or bad judgments, it's that they're able to make judgments at all, which is why I said it's the Brexit debate all over again. Phil, thank you for joining us. Now, one of the things the government has talked about with huge passion is that we should all get electric cars. Yes, we are from 20 
2030, we will not be selling any new petrol or diesel cars or vans. We're all going electric. And yet, at a time of rocketing fuel prices, and I mean rocketing fuel prices, the announcement this week that the £1,500 grant that was available to reduce the price of smaller electric cars has been removed by the government. And let me tell you, here in central London, if you've got an electric car and you want to go and charge it, well, the very, very best of luck to you. Their whole transport policy is in a complete and utter mess. And I'll predict, I'll predict that yet another U-turn that comes from this government is they will get rid of the edict that says no petrol diesel cars will be sold after 2030. Well, the passion of those debates we've just had remind me of six years ago and the Brexit referendum campaign. And it's six years ago to the day that I was on the river behind me, the Thames, being shouted at by Bob Geldof through a very loud microphone. It's all enough to make you think it really is that time of the day. And it's time for Talking Pints. And Carl Llewellyn, delighted that you're here to join me Cheers. this evening. Pleasure. Thank you. Now, we've not met before. No. But I have seen you in action before. Because I was in the grandstand at Aintree in 1992, watching the Grand National, and I did have a bet on a horse, and you were riding that horse that day, weren't you? Yeah, must have, well, if it won. Party politics. <laughs> yeah. well, I, mean, I had to put money on a horse called yeah, well, party would, politics. Yeah. yeah, a long time ago now, 30 years. It's a long mm. time ago, but you had two Grand National winners, Scottish Grand National, Welsh Grand National. What was it that made you good? At, at steeplechase racing, dangerous steeplechase racing. I think most most jockeys would say that they were on the right horse on the, on the on the right day, when conditions were right and the horse was in great form, and luckily enough didn't make a, a mess of it. Um, so you know you've got to get the right horse. You, if the horse does most of the work, and without the horse having loads of ability, you've got no chance no matter how good you are. So you've got to have a good horse. Yeah, yeah. I mean that makes sense. And mm. we were talking the other week about uh, about Lester Piggott and how you know he'd go to Newmarket and spot the horse that he wanted to ride in the Derby on and, and, and other jockeys would perhaps be a bit cheesed off that Leicester had, 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 had sort of nicked the ride. But I was saying before you came in that actually the racing calendar is a big part of our year. The National Hunt Festivals, the flat season, this week it's Royal Ascot. It's the first proper Royal Ascot since the pandemic, since lockdown, vast crowds of people uh, flocking there. Uh, do you think racing is as important in our lives as it was 30 years ago? Um, I think that other sports have developed. And so um, I think the, the world is getting, getting smaller place. So I think people can travel more and see other sports as well. So maybe it isn't quite as, 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 um, as big as it was. It's yeah. still it's still massive. It's still big. Yeah. And it's big all over the world, isn't it, as yeah. well? And crowds, you know, massive crowds all the time, especially at, at the big meetings. It's fantastic, like Cheltenham, Aintree and, and Ascot this week. You know, fantastic, sold out. I was at Cheltenham this year. I went on the Friday. I went on Gold Cup Day. And, uh, hey, there's a female jockey doing very well mm. in jump racing. Rachel is doing incredibly well. I was there on the Friday at Cheltenham. It was magnificent. I mean, a full house the organisation, everything about it was absolutely phenomenal. And you go to those big events and it feels like racing is healthy. The smaller events, perhaps it's much, much more difficult. But there was one thing, there was one thing at Cheltenham that really made me think. And I get it. I understand that these horses are bred 
to be jumping horses, that they wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for the racing or point-to-pointing or whatever it yeah. may be. And it kind of is point-to-pointing that is the kind of the nursery, isn't it, Ruben? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. For, yeah. for, for National Hunt Racing. So I get, that, I get all of that, and I understand all of that. And I hadn't been to Cheltenham. I hadn't been to the festival for quite a number of years. I've been quite busy with other things. Um, and it was interesting. As we arrived, there were a number, not huge, but a number of people there protesting, giving out leaflets. And, you know, you can say, well, it's the Animal Rights Brigade, it's the anti-hunt lot, it's the we want to ban fishing lot, it's the we want to ban everything lot. But they didn't quite strike me as being that. They didn't, didn't quite strike me as being, I mean, there is a very extreme element mm. of, the animal, of, of, of the animal rights movement. These people didn't quite strike me as that. And I've talked about this with some younger people, people, who, you know, youngsters who like riding horses. And what I saw on that day at Cheltenham, you know, the couple of horses had very bad falls. It happens, they get put down. Do you worry? I mean, let's face it, we're a country that has banned fox hunting. We're a country with a government that has brought in all sorts of animal welfare legislation. One of Boris's big claims at the minute, he's going to ban trophies from Africa being imported back into the country. Do you think jump racing has got a real problem with this? And, and the fact that a certain number of horses every year get put down. Where do we go with this? Um, I don't think it's a real problem, but as you say, there are thousands of horses bred for racing mm-hmm. um, and they're looked after so well. You know, it's, it's in every owner and trainer's interest to have the horse in the best health and fitness and, and condition to race. So they get the best, the, the best food, you know, um, the best hay and the best... So they're well looked after. Oh, fantastic. And vets and mm. all the rest of it. And they worked hard. Yeah, so it's, it's a high quality of life they get. They get, you know, they, they, they're, they're looked after so well, and I'm afraid some of them do pay with their lives, but for the, for the, for the thousands and thousands that have a fantastic life and a, and a fantastic retirement, um, there is a percentage that, you know, sadly lose their life. But, um, you know, we think that's, a, a, that's fair enough. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's sad, but... Uh, compared to the thousands who have a fantastic life, which they wouldn't have any life without being bred for racing, um, it's probably, you know, um, it's, just a, it's just something that happens in the sport and it, 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 you know, I don't think you can rule it out altogether without, you know, ev- ev- there's danger in everything, isn't there? There is danger in everything. No, um, that is absolutely you know, right. How far do you go? But you it know. happens, you know, the big festivals, the national, Cheltenham, you know, we see several horses every year between both. Well, it depends on the going a little bit. Yeah. Several horses eat. But do you, I mean, I, I'm just saying to you as somebody, you know, who spent his life in that industry, that I, I do sense there is a growing movement of people that would like to effectively ban jump racing, and it worries me. Yeah, I think it's the world we're in now, isn't it? More and more people, you know, um, put a, a concerned about things like that. You know, years ago, no one really they let everyone get on with their well, own more bit, and more people, they? More and more people want to dictate. Yeah, and more how people. you should live your life or yeah. I should live more, I should live my life um, you know whether it's the, the new legislation that you will you won't ever be ever be able to buy a cigarette if you're born after a certain year or mm. I mean you know I sense from your answer that there's something in you that's a bit more libertarian yeah um, more and more people in every walk of life get offended by 
you know, things that years ago no one would even cared about. They wouldn't even spoke, had a conversation about things, and, and now people are getting offended by it and think it's wrong. Um, so, you know, how far do we go? Do we, you know, loads of animals, you know, suffer, dogs, where do you go? Do you not let them run around the park in case they hurt themselves? You know, it goes on, doesn't it? And it's just bit by bit um, bowing to people. Where do we end up? Um, yeah, and it's the same with what we can say to each other and how we can behave. I very mean, much so, I yeah. mean, you know, are you yeah. easily offended? No, do, you, do, no. do you need your safe space? <laughs> not at all. I, I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. No, and you can, people have their opinion. And you'd have to fall out because you disagree with someone, do you? Um, but I don't. Th I don't think you do. No, but no. more people, more and more people do think like that. But you know, if they don't, if they don't um, like what someone said, they they're offended and they and they fall out. And I don't get it. Life, so when you, life's too short. So, well, I agree with that, but an increasing number of people do take offence at virtually anything. So there you are. You know, it's the national. It's one of the big races, and you're there, and you're getting ready. What's the banter like between the jockeys? Because you're competing with each other for fame and fortune, aren't you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite unique, because you're in a, 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 the changing rooms beforehand with all your opposition. Mm. But you actually get, it, you get on, and the atmosphere and the... the it's as if you're in a team because you get on so well. You see each other every day, and you're you've got the same. You're like-minded. You like the adrenaline, and you know you obviously like love horses. Um, so it's like you're in a team, and then you go out and you're in direct competition, and you'll you know do as much as you can to to um, to beat the others. But you come in and you congratulate the winner, and you know the lads who maybe had a fall and hurt themselves. You, you'll, everyone will check see if they're okay, and they'll help them if they need help, and. Get them to hospital so there's a fair bit of teamwork, a fair bit of camaraderie it's there. Massive. It's massive. It's very strange because, you know, it's as if you're in a really tight-knit team. Yeah. And then you go out and you're totally against each other, opposition, come back in and you're a team again. You know, we all look after each other and, you know, make sure they're OK, take them to hospital, well, wait, wait for say, hours I mean, for, for I mean, entries. I mean, jump but, racing. I mean, crikey. You know, when I, when I go and watch jump racing and I see a jockey come off and the horse is coming, I think, oh, I can barely watch it. I mean, it's got to be pretty scary when you hit the ground, isn't it? No, you haven't got time to think about it, but um, it's what you're used to. You know, I mean, I wouldn't want to be jumping off a cliff and, or, or, or you know, skydiving and things like that. It's what you're used to, isn't it? And so what injuries did you sustain? Oh, God, I broke so much. So I, I obviously wasn't that good because I broke, I broke loads of legs and back and collarbones and arms and dislocated elbows and just loads of stuff so I obviously wasn't that good because I, I fell off too much. Well you had some big wins. Yeah I got a few lucky ones along the way yeah. yeah. But I mean the sheer body damage that jockeys put themselves through. Yeah but you know when you're young you don't think of that do you? I mean now I realise <laughs> I probably wish I had fallen off so much but at the time you're young and you just think you know, it's a great adrenaline rush and, and it's a great buzz. You know, you can't, when you retire, you, that's something mm. that everyone misses. And loads of sportsmen, you know, when they miss the adrenaline, don't they, of, of sport and competition of and winning. Of course, of and, course, um, and being in the limelight and, and, and the attention and all of it. Yeah. But you, I mean, you went on to be a trainer, um, but you're now helping and coaching young jockeys. And I'm just interested, you know, is the training different? Is the diet different? How are, how are young jockeys today in racing competitive? Massively more dedicated. You know, in all sports, we've come on. Um, the, the nutrition side is, you know, we, we just used to eat badly, you know, um, and, and starve yourself. If you need to lose weight, you'd starve yourself and this sort of thing. Um, so you'd, you'd ride dehydrated a lot of the time and this sort of thing. A lot of the, I wasn't, I, I wasn't um, too bad with weight, but a lot of lads who are bigger than me, you know, they'd be very dehydrated riding, which in turn isn't good for, your, for taking falls when you're dehydrated. 
you, it, it's been proven you do so more damage. So what would be a good weight for a jump jockey? Nine, seven, nine, nine, that's a great weight. You know, you, you, you could eat sensibly then. Um, but nutrition's improved. Recovery from injuries, I mean, they, they've got some set, three centres around the country now where specialists, where you've got a, a team of people who can look after you and physios and rehabilitation and some fantastic things that um, the Injured Jockeys Fund, which is a fantastic um, organisation, um, um, I've, I've built and set up and they're running now. You know, it's a very expensive thing, but jo the, the treatment jockey get, jockeys get now is so much, so much better than it was. The medical treatment they get? Yeah, we, we're to look after ourselves, basically. Um, and, um, and again, coaching, you know, there was no coaches in our days. You just got, a, got, got well done if you did well and, and something else if you didn't. Um, because now there's, you know, you can analyse it more and obviously television helps and you've got easy access to replays and things like that. And, you can, and psychology, you can, does that come into it as well? There yeah, it does, yeah. Training I mean, and yeah, there's, there's, you can, you can, there's sports psychologists you can see as well and it's all just a phone call away. So all that's improved so much, you know, it, it needed to. But, um, you know, we catch up on other sports, so it's great. When you look at the flat, you know, obviously Ascot this week and the Derby a couple of weeks ago, do you follow the flat and go to flat meetings as well, or are you just a jump jockey? Uh, no, I, I follow the flat a little bit, yeah, just a bit. Um, I normally go to Ascot, I'm not going this week, but, um, yeah, I, lo I love Ascot. I mean, the atmosphere is just fantastic, and that's what everyone loves, just, the, um, just being there amongst, you know, all them people, and it's fantastic. But completely dominated by Arab Bunny, isn't it? A lot of it is, yeah, 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 a lot of it is. But, yeah, that's, that's where it is, yeah. Where's the British money for racing? I mean, the flat wouldn't have survived without Arab money, would it? Um, it probably would survive, but in a different form. Um, you know, a lot of people might say they'd be better without it. I wouldn't say that, but, you know, there'd be a lot more people would be interested, maybe. But j jumping-wise, it's, it's, it's you know, not much um, of that sort of money in it. No. And a final thought, here we are, inflation is back at, you know, heading for double digits, the government's in trouble. It all feels a bit like the 1970s in some ways with all the things that are going on. How do you feel at the sort of state of the country is and, and where are we going as a nation? Mm, it's worrying, isn't it? Um, yeah, well, I think we're probably going the wrong way, I'd say. <laughs> well, I think that's probably I think, right. I think we should change direction, but... Um... Yeah. yeah, well, I think on that note, we'll get back to our beer. Carl, okay. thank you very much indeed for joining me on Talking Pint. Cheers. I might bring you back in. Okay. Okay, that is it. We've got time for Barrage the Farage. I, of course, never see these questions until they're presented to me on this card. And I'm going to bring Carl back into this. One viewer asks, with horse racing becoming a contentious subject regarding animal welfare, the point that I raised earlier, how can we make it safer for both horse and jockey? And just before you answer that, you know, for example, Beecher's Brook, you know, that famous fence at Aintree, they have changed it a bit to make it a bit safer, haven't they? Massively. It's a completely different fence. Yeah. Um, it used to be stakes, wooden stakes that were solid, um, which is quite high, and they were, quite, they were upright. And um, now it's, it's a plastic little brush fence with a lovely slope on it and some spruce on top. It's a completely different fence. I mean, you look at the pictures from years ago to what it is now, it's a completely different fence. Were you scared of jumping beaches? Um, no, because your adrenaline's up and you, you love it. You're on, you're on you know, good horses that are mainly very good jumpers. And so um, they're, they're, they're bred to do that. So is making it easier and safer, is that the right thing to have done? Or was it more of a challenge before? 
it was much more of a challenge, and much more of a, a, a test for, for horsemanship. Um, so you had much a better feeling of yeah. when you completed it to, um, of, of, of um, you know, <laughs> setting out to get round was a mm. was a, a great yeah. achievement. Before. Yeah. Well, I suspect we'll go more and more in this direction. Camilla asks me: America joined in World War Two only after their own security was threatened. Will they do the same over Ukraine? Well, America joined World War Two, but it was helping, of course, the British would lend lease. Interestingly, the 102-year-old we had here yesterday, Steve Melnikov, his family came from Ukraine. Nearly his entire family perished in World War II. Look, as far as Ukraine's concerned, you can agree or disagree, but it's Boris Johnson that's taken the international lead in terms of supplying training, weapons and equipment to Ukraine. And frankly, America has come in behind what Johnson has done. The one thing America is keen to do NATO are keen to do is not to get directly involved. Laura asks, do you think there'll be a second referendum on Scottish independence? Oh, they never stop, do they? I mean, Nicola Sturgeon, she's against the Scottish referendum result. She's against the Brexit referendum result. I mean, there is no democratic choice taken by the people in this country that Nicola Sturgeon doesn't want to undo. If they do have a second referendum, I tell you what, they will lose. Another asks, final question, have you tried vaping? I know all of you want me to give up smoking. I have tried vaping. I think it was absolutely vile and it made me cough horribly. But there we are. Enough of me. It's been quite a contentious evening. ECHR is a very, very powerful subject. I promise you this, folks. Those planes will not go to Rwanda all the while we're tied to ECHR and have the Human Rights Act enshrined in British law. I believe I'm right on this one. I'm done for this evening. Back with you tomorrow at 7 